Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to talk tonight about transforming our suffering into happiness. Just the possibility of doing that and the fact that we are doing that as we spend these days and weeks together. <clears throat> We've talked somewhat about the uh, four foundations of mindfulness and particularly uh, that second foundation of feeling is what I want to explore in this uh, topic. You know, that feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. It's there in every moment, as we've been discussing. And when we don't see clearly, we respond in ways that lead to suffering. When we don't see clearly the flavor of experience and we react to it, it creates suffering. If there is a pleasant experience and we don't see clearly, we grasp, we get attached. And this is a contraction that leads to a lot of pain, as you've seen. This is the second noble truth of the Buddha. The cause of suffering is attachment or grasping. When we are faced with an unpleasant experience, the habitual reaction is that of contraction, aversion, hatred, anger. And again, as we all know, this is pretty painful. When we are confused about what's happening, if things are neutral, we either space out or we identify with the experience. You know, my awful meditation, my awful shoulder or back. <clears throat> and that, again, is the cause of suffering in our lives. When we can see clearly and we don't react in those ways, the other possibilities are not grasping at the pleasant, non-greed, as it's sometimes referred to. When we are faced with an unpleasant moment and we see clearly the response is not pushing away, but rather being open to it and allowing it and learning from it even, what is a spirit of friendliness or loving kindness. And when we are faced with a neutral experience or one that usually confuses us, when we see clearly, we are expressing non-delusion or wisdom. And these three things are the cause of happiness on a, on a karmic level. The three roots of suffering are, not, are greed, hatred, and delusion, also referred to as attachment, diversion, and ignorance. And the three expressions or sources of happiness are non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. So it's right there in every moment. This is true whether it's the Buddhist teachings or other kinds of, of teachings. You know, it, this is not intrinsic to the Buddha and Buddhism. This is the way it works. And I recall for um, many years, uh, early in my practice, for a couple of years anyway, when I was going back and forth between 
different paths, whether I, the path for me was the path of devotion or the path of wisdom, you know, otherwise known as uh, Buddha Dharma versus the devotional path. Uh, and I would go back and forth, which is true, which is true? Because for me, as I, as I mentioned, uh, Neem Karoli Baba was uh, a very major inspiration for me, Maharaji. And one day it, it occurred to me that Maharaji's main instructions, he didn't give a whole lot of, of um, practices and teachings. He just got right to the heart of the matter. He said, love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And it dawned on me one day, oh, love everyone, non-hatred, serve everyone, non-greed or generosity, remember God, non-delusion, seeing clearly. It was a very happy moment for me when I realized it didn't matter what path I was doing, it was the same thing. But I'd like to explore this with the Buddha's, uh, in, in the framework of the Buddha's teachings, and go through each of these three, greed and non-greed, or the whole continuum of greed being craving, grasping, attachment. <clears throat> craving is, uh, on the wheel of dependent origination, precedes grasping. Craving is just this sense of wanting, of incompleteness, and looking outside of ourselves for, for something that will make us happy. Grasping is a more powerful um, development of that same force. It's like if you're feeling hungry, that might be considered you know, on the, the craving end of things. And if the mind all of a sudden comes up with pizza, it becomes grasping, you know, when that's the thing that's going to do it for you. And if you can see that movement of mind from that general sense of wanting to having it solidify into an object, then you've got a better chance at breaking that, that cycle. These are the, the Buddha's words on grasping. He says, There are many kinds of suffering in the world, and all of them grow from the same source, grasping. When a person knows no better, he or she gives way to this grasping, and slow and dulled, goes through one misery after another. So do not create it for yourselves. Use your knowledge to see how suffering begins and develops in attachment. Kind of calls it just like it is. <clears throat> so when we can see how grasping works, there's the possibility of having a dawn on us on us, oh, this is painful. How about if I do it another way? The opposite of grasping, non-grasping or letting go, words that you've heard for countless years, I'm sure. Letting go. Ajahn Chah says, and maybe this was said here before, I'm not sure, let go a little and you will have a little freedom. Let go a lot and you'll have a lot of freedom. Let go completely and you'll have complete freedom and your troubles with the world will come to an end. So it's right there. It's, it's, it's inviting us in every moment to respond with wisdom. We can choose if we see clearly. This is from uh, Tibetan Gendron Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. But it's so seductive, isn't it? Thinking that if I only have this, then I'll be happy. Mm, 
I know I, all right, I've gone through it 17,000 times before, but maybe this one's going to get, do it for me. You know, how do we keep on getting fooled like that? Isn't that amazing? That's one of the most amazing things in the world. You can be practicing here, you know, for years, and, you know, weeks and, and days and hour after hour, you know, practicing for, you know, your 10th three-month retreat, whatever, and still you get fooled. Isn't it amazing? Maybe this will do it. You know? But over time, and I think that many of us have seen, there is this kind of transformation that just one recognizes the predicament that we're in and two, starts to loosen those ties little by little. And so the things that we thought we just had to have, we can start to see through them. Even if we get snared you know, in this moment by the next ice cream cone or whatever it is, it's possible over time to cultivate a different attitude. The interesting thing is when we're in the middle of that energy of attachment, of grasping, we can't even appreciate what we have in front of us because we either are afraid that it'll go away or we're wanting some more. Well, okay, I've got it right now, but what about five minutes from now or a week from now? And we can topple forward into the future and not even enjoy what we have here. You know, many of you have heard the story of trying to train my son when he was about two, actually, down at Yucca Valley with the, the big bowl of strawberries, luscious strawberries that he, he loved and grabbing one after another, stuffing them into his mouth, and I tried to teach him to eat it mindfully before he reached for the next one. Very naive. I was just a parent for a little less than two years. And there was this one moment in his, that he had this huge strawberry in his mouth, and I had the bowl. I was keeping it out of his reach. And he was going, it's, it's indelible in my mind, this, this image of him going, Strawberry! <laughs> And that's what we find ourselves in. We can't taste the one that's right there as we're so hooked on getting the next one. You probably, you know, or perhaps you know the experience of Vipassana romance, the VR syndrome, you know, how painful it is, but at the same time how seductive it is, you know. You know better. You know you're probably not going to see this person again. You know that, you know, your fantasies, as many mind moments as you've spent in them, you know, probably will turn out differently than than you imagine. Not always, I should tell you, but... (laughs) (laughs) That was mean. (laughs) But I do know, actually... (laughs) A few times, the odds are like a lottery, you know. (laughs) But I want to just give truth in advertising. But how painful it is, you know. There you are minding your own business, and then all of a sudden, "Ah!" that thought of that person comes into your mind. I remember on one three-month retreat, this this is my... It's in 1979, and I had this intense VR, right? And I was just, it got so bad I didn't even go to the hall. I just sat in my room, you know. (laughs) It's true, you know. It actually turned out to be good practice, you know. It was a blessing, but okay. Guard the sense doors, the Buddha said. And I'd be sitting there and be really, you know, in very nice spaces in meditation. All of a sudden, the thought of this person came and, it, and it, I held on like a bucking bronco, you know, <laughs> desire, 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 <laughs> desire, 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 desire. And, but what was interesting was it, as I kept up with it, after a while, it might have been, you know, like 10 minutes or 15 minutes sometimes, after a while, it just became boring and then it was 
Oh, desire, 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 desire. Psst. And then something else took its place. <laughs> if you can hold on like that, you know, I promise you, everything is impermanent, including that. <clears throat> Till the next time it comes up. <clears throat> okay, so let's see another possibility. In the moment that you're mindful of pleasant sense impingement, as I said, you keep from moving into that grasping. You simply are noting and naming it, ah, pleasant, 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 pleasant. Whether it's a beautiful sunrise or uh, something delicious that you're eating, or even somebody who you find attractive. Unpleasant, unpleasant. <laughs> it's okay, don't worry. <laughs> Notice the identification with your experience. You know. it, it just happened. <clears throat> and you can actually appreciate the aesthetics. You know, that's how it, you don't have to say, oh no, that's not really attractive. You know, this isn't really present, that pleasant, that person isn't really attractive. You know, it's just, oh, that's an attractive expression of, of nature, you know, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. And maybe it doesn't give rise to grasping. <clears throat> if it does, here's the good news. It doesn't mean that you failed or been defeated. It just means that's the time to bring mindfulness to the experience of grasping. If you think, oh my God, there I got caught again, and you start beating yourself up, and you say, I'll never get out of this, you got hooked. But if instead there are moments of mindfulness in there that just say, ah, this is wanting, this is the wanting mind, this is how it feels, you know, I I wouldn't wish a VR on anybody, but when it comes, you can learn an awful lot from it. Really, you can, just by using that to explore the nature of the wanting. Explore how it feels in your body, what it feels like in your mind, without any judgment, but just see for yourself what the Buddha is talking about. Yes, this is suffering. Ah, yes, and in the moment that you see it, here's the interesting thing. In the moment that you're mindful of it, you are not in it. You're not feeding it. It's a moment of wisdom and clarity and learning just from that which is difficult and painful. So mindfulness of grasping is, is just as potent and illuminating in some ways more so than mindfulness of the pleasant. It's never too late to start. As there's more of a sense of sufficiency, of wholeness that comes, when there's a a feeling of completeness in this moment, then a sense of trust becomes developed. And that trust is just the opposite of reaching out and saying, I need this. If I get this, I'll be happy. Just, ah, yes, this moment is complete just as it is, whether it's a pleasant one or an unpleasant one. The Buddha talked a lot about generosity about, and the mind of no clinging. The mind of no clinging is really the heart of, of, of his teaching. But in the form of generosity, he spoke quite specifically about it. It was... it is the first paramita of the, the ten paramitas of perfection of a Buddha. It's the first thing, even before um, morality and before effort, before um, meditation practice that he, that he would teach to, to lay people often. Because in generosity, you are experiencing the activity of letting go. And you're also understanding the power of the interconnectedness that we all share, the interdependence 
of all of life forms. It's also one of the paramis, another list, parami, paramita, the same root, but in the, in, in the Theravadan tradition, the, the three paramis or forces of purity that arise in, um, in good, uh, good results, good circumstances are dana, sila, and bhavana, generosity, morality, and uh, cultivation of the heart and mind. And dana and sila together are what are called purity of conduct, and they result in good circumstances and the opportunity to hear the dharma. Bhavana results in the, the uh, parami or the force of purity that results in practicing and realizing the dharma. But you, you can see for yourself how when you cultivate generosity, it comes back. It's simply the karmic result. How are you around somebody who is very generous? You want to be generous back, generally. It's probably a bit different than being around somebody who's kind of insecure with their possessions. Oh, I might not have enough. When you're around a generous person, you respond. You want to give back. And the same way when you practice generosity of heart, the karmic result is abundance. Not on your timetable, and you can't have it with that intention, oh, I'll just give a lot, then a lot will come back to me. No, you kind of miss the point when you do that. But just an, a spontaneous generosity of heart is, very, is a very potent seed. Around this generosity, I just want to mention about three components, the purity of the giver, the purity of the gift, and the purity of the receiver, all come together to create that much more powerful karmic result. So I just want to put a plug in for receiving wisely, as long as we're talking about this, that when you can receive with grace somebody else's pure-hearted gift and generosity, you are not only having the benefit of what they're giving, but it is a kind and generous act to them, too. It ups the, the, the power of the gift. You know? So by being modest or saying, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't have, or how could you, you're not doing them a favor. And you probably know that feeling when you want to give something to somebody and they, it's hard for them to take. What we give of our heart, of our, of our um, resources, is really just the, the, the way we express our caring. And I know a number of people have heard the, the story of, um, of the cheesecake that I got on retreat 20 years ago as I was cleaning the dishes and uh, cleaning the pots and, uh, in, at IMS and, and the manager came out and looked at me and he said, I was silent, but he said, here, this is for you. And I finished with my, my job and I opened up the, the foil and there was this big piece of cheesecake with glaze and nuts and stuff. And by this time, a second slice of bread at tea was a big deal for me. Right? And... And it was big, so I, I just broke it in a few different pieces. It was big. So, and you just start to feel that wanting to share as a natural consequence. And I put it in three different people's bowls, uh, three pieces. I kept one piece for myself. Right? And then I watched as they each came into tea time and their mouths dropped. And one piece, one person took their piece and and put it in another, shared it with another bowl, which that last piece was um, Howie's uh, bowl, right? <laughs> this is 1979. And um, I ate my piece of cheesecake very mindfully, I can assure you, extremely mindfully. It was delicious. It lasted about 45 seconds, maybe, maybe a minute, minute and a half or so. But why I share this story is that 20 years later, 
I feel connected with five people through one piece of cheesecake. That manager and the three people I shared it with and, and Howie at the end, you know, one piece of cheesecake. It's just the stuff of our caring. So it's, it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful way that we, that we can feel connection. This generosity, letting go and also feeling that interconnectedness. The most powerful, I think, expression of generosity of heart is in terms of practice for the benefit of all, what is called bodhicitta. And seeing that what you're cultivating, your own kindness and wisdom and and clarity, is not just for you, but it's a gift that you give to everyone. And this um, this is from... Nyoshal Kempo Rinpoche, he says, the very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever we might do besides that is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified purified, transformed, and even be beneficial to others through any and every form of contact with that good heart which we strive to embody. It's a beautiful motivation to practice and it it just fuels and, and inspires us to be mindful and cultivate our own being as best we can. When we are mindful in the moment, when we cultivate this experience of open-handedness, of generosity, the way karma works, and for all three of these it works this way, is that it feels good right now. It also feels good in the future, when we reflect back on our good acts of generosity, and the karmic result will come to us and feel good that way too. So every moment that you are practicing non-greed is a very potent um, karmic seed. Just think of, think of some generous thing, generous act that you've done you know, in your life, you know, or maybe in the last, since you've been on the retreat, just a, a simple little thing or something in your, your life in, in recent times. And when you think about it, just do it for a moment. Just think, think about some generous act that you've done. It could be the simplest little thing. Now, as you think about that, doesn't that feel good? To remember that? And if your life is filled with generous acts, how much more we can be nourishing our heart when we look back on our life, if we've filled them, filled it with generous acts, just imagine how how full and well spent we can feel at the end of our lives. So, in the moment that we are mindful, we are cultivating this quality of generosity of heart, of open-handedness, of non-grasping. Okay, on to the second. Non-hatred or kindness, loving-kindness. Also, in hatred is included, as I said, um, aversion, Um, fear is in there, that contraction away from experience. And in the moment that we are mindful of the unpleasant, as just unpleasant, we don't get caught in that reaction. 
So right there you can catch that cycle. But again, as with the first, the good news is it's never too late. When you find yourself in the middle of anger, aversion, hatred, fear, or whatever, you can bring a moment of mindfulness to that experience and that moment, those moments of mindfulness cut through, they weaken that response. Because the power of mindfulness is that it's a purifying force and it can't exist in the same moment as unwholesome factors. It's just how it works. So as you're mindful of aversion, for instance, as simply aversion without that judgment on top of it, ah, this is aversion, oh, let's feel what this is like, oh, this is anger, okay, let's explore it. And whatever it is that's triggered that off in you gives you a chance to explore that pattern of response, you are deconditioning the strength of that reaction. Whether it's a a painful feeling in the body, or a painful emotion, or an aversion to the situation, there's still a contraction that, that comes when we're not clear. But it's also seductive. Not quite as much, I think, as, as the attachment end of things. But we can feel righteous in our indignation. You know, that feeling, I'm justifiably outraged, you know. And it can feel kind of uh, alive, you know. You get a little hit of energy from it. Yeah, that so-and-so really deserves And we can get caught just, just by that. I know, I know some people who that is their way that they feel alive. You know? it's, it's very painful. You probably all know people like that. The corresponding... Uh, example of, of uh, aversion to the VR is what the VV syndrome or Vipassana Vendetta, you know, <laughs> where somebody is, has been planted here to mess up your retreat. Right? <laughs> and it's really fascinating to see how it works. You know? It projects outward and, say, and says they're to blame, they're the problem, not seeing that this is where the suffering is. The Buddha talked about anger is, is um, something that we sometimes hold on to like a hot coal, not realizing that it's burning us, not realizing with the, with that we have the option to have a, a different response, to see it clearly and let it go. So the opposite seems a whole lot more useful. Non-hatred, non-aversion, or love, loving-kindness. In the, mi- the moment that we're mindful, okay, the unpleasant can turn to awakening. And the power of mindfulness, this is something I really find fascinating. What we think we absolutely can't touch is actually the doorway often to our deepest understandings. The thing that gets us most frightened, like fear, for instance. Oh no, I can't be with fear. Or anger, whatever it is. Let's take fear. Oh my God, fear is here. I'm going to just get lost. There'll be no way out. I could never touch fear. And the paradox is once you come in contact with your demons and you do it mindfully, you do it with some loving kindness. Not necessarily to start doing loving kindness so you can touch the fear, although that can be a skillful means, but just in the moment that you're aware with a kind heart, with a compassionate heart, it starts to transform it. I was talking to somebody um, this week uh, 
I hadn't seen for, for some time. And we, we were both saying how happy uh, we were these days. And how are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing really good. I'm feeling really happy. How are you? Me too. And he said, some people, I guess, are just, you know, born, you know, with good karma or, or born, born happy. And I said, well, you know, I, I actually, I shared with him a, a key moment when I, when I, when I had a, a shift in my life, and it was the moment that I was most afraid. That when I think back on my life, the moment that I was most terrified preceded the major shift in my opening up to life. And when I shared it with him, he said, you know, now that you mention it, the same thing happened to me. As he talked about it, he said, yeah, I was, and he described this whole experience of facing his fear. And he said, I hadn't thought about that in a while. And I think it's true, not necessarily that that is the defining moment in, in everyone's life, but I think it's true, the more we see that we have the capacity to face our fears, the less we are moving away from life and the more we can open up to it and have the courage to face it and to transform that into something quite beautiful. Because as we've seen again and again, it's our pain and our suffering that deepens our compassion and also is the cause of faith. I don't know if it's been mentioned in here, this, the other side of this wheel of dependent origination, there's, there's another cycle that is the cause of awakening. And in that cycle, suffering is the antecedent to faith. So just by touching your suffering powerfully, uh, touching those things that you're most afraid of, you can start to transform them. The image that I love is the Buddha, just before, as he was in, enlightened, and Mara, who is throwing all of these things to confuse him from desire and, and, uh, and uh, lustful images, and, and then the arrows of, um, of attack, of, of fear, uh, to frighten him, all of these these. Mara's armies, and the Buddha holds up his hand, and the arrows of attack are transformed into flowers that drop at his feet. And that's how mindfulness works. We can transmute that frightening experience into compassion and wisdom and love. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes practice, and we have to be very patient with it. I thought I'd share with you the Dalai Lama's own experience talking about his development of love and compassion. He says, whenever I speak about the importance of compassion and love, people ask me, what is the method for developing them? This is not easy. I don't think there's any particular package or method that enables you to develop these qualities instantaneously. You cannot just press a button and wait for them to appear. I know that many people expect things like this from a Dalai Lama, but really all I have to offer you is my own experience. Then he says, I come from the northeastern part of Tibet. Usually people from that area are quite short-tempered. So if I get angry, I can use this as an excuse. When I was 15 or 20, I was quite short-tempered. But through training and through difficult experiences, I have been able to improve my mental stability. Difficult experiences are very good training for the mind and heart. They help us to develop a kind of inner determination and faith. Today, compared with 20 or 30 years ago, my mental stability is much better. Of course, irritation still arises sometimes, but it disappears quickly and heated agitation is almost never there. As a result, I experience more happiness and joy. 
When the worst news comes, I feel uncomfortable for a few minutes, but afterward, I don't feel much disturbance. Through training, we can change. Gives a little hope. Through training, we can change. There's different levels of this friendliness, kindness, and, and love that we can meet the moment with. There is the level of loving yourself, just learning to love as we did in the earlier days of metta and are practicing in each of the other Brahma Viharas. It's so difficult. I've talked a little bit about this before, those feelings of unworthiness or somehow that we don't belong, what Albert Einstein calls an optical delusion of consciousness, that somehow everything else belongs and we're a mistake. But if you think about it, loving yourself, it's not so remote. Just imagine, this is what I've done in the last few years, imagine meeting somebody who had just the same take on the world, had your tastes in clothes, in entertainment, in people, who got your jokes, you know, you didn't have to explain anything to, who got your outrages and frustrations, who just got it, you know. I'd love to meet somebody who got it the way I get it, you know. You probably would too. But somehow when that being is inside of our bodies, it's not the same, you know. If we could somehow meet ourselves at a party, you know, we'd probably be tickled pink, you know. So you might just try that, you know. Get to meet this new person. Call them a different name if you'd like, you know. But that's who you are. There's loving that happens on an interpersonal relationship where we can somehow mysteriously and magically be touched and moved because somebody else's goodness of heart or being resonates with us and opens us up. That's one of the most amazing things in the world. It can so easily, however, turn into Attachment. And remember, the near enemy of love is attachment, which is a contracted quality. It's not expansive. It's possessive. But there is that interpersonal feeling of love. And through that love of somebody else, we can learn to love life. There is the love that I talked about on the first night, loving the Dharma, that citta idipada, where we've touched that place of purity and we're so moved by it that it brings us back to another retreat. It brings us to want to learn and awaken because, not just because it's a nice thing to do, because it's a noble thing to do, but because it just feels so good. And that love of the Dharma is something that I think we should respect and honor and uh, delight in, the fact that somehow we've heard that call. And then there's the love on a deeper level that comes from the experience of non-separation. Sometimes the word emptiness is used. That might not be the best word for, uh, for people. It's a little confusing. It seems a kind of like vacuum in there. But emptiness is, again, referring to emptiness of a separate self. And in that seeing, there is this connection with everything. There's no separation. There's no barriers. And in the moment that we're mindful, it's possible to experience this, that non-separation. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh says. He says, 
Fifteen years ago, I helped a committee for orphans who were victims of the war in Vietnam. From Vietnam, the social workers sent out applications, one sheet of paper with a small picture of a child in the corner, telling the name, age, and conditions of the orphan. My job was to translate the application from Vietnamese into French in order to seek a sponsor so that the child would have food to eat and books for school and be put into the family of an aunt, an uncle, or a grandparent. Then the committee in France could send the money to the family member to help take care of the child. Each day I helped translate about 30 applications. The way I did it was to look at the picture of the child. I did not read the application. I just took time to look at the picture of the child. Usually after only 30 or 40 seconds, I became one with the child. Then I would pick up the pen and translate the words from the application onto the sheet. Afterwards, I realized that it was not me who had translated the application. It was the child and me who had become one. Looking at their face, I felt inspired and became the child, and he or she became me, and together we did the translation. It's very natural. You don't have to practice a lot of meditation to be able to do that. You just look, allowing yourself to be, and you lose yourself in the child and the child in you. Now, we don't want to go around with such openness that we lose our boundaries. There can be a, you know, a danger in that as well. And so the balance is to have some healthy boundaries, but to see underneath it the connection that, that we all share. When we're not in the way, wondering how we come off or if we're good enough or how this person feels about me. And the karmic result of a moment of kindness, a moment of non-aversion to the unpleasant as well, is feeling good in this moment, feeling good when you reflect back in the future, and also for love to come to you. Whatever goes around comes around. So it's worth it. It makes sense. And each moment of mindfulness, we're cultivating that. Lastly, non-delusion. Delusion also known as ignorance or confusion. Delusion is, on the one hand, spacing out and not seeing things clearly, not getting, uh, not, or getting confused. And on the other, it's also taking, having identification with the experience, owning it. And what you're not seeing clearly, what delusion really is, is taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is the cause of suffering to be the cause of happiness, grasping, and taking what is essentially selfless to be self. That sense of separation of self and identification. This happens any moment that we take blame or credit for our experience, where we are judging what I referred to as the conceit of I am. And it's so quick to arise, you know. Like I, I said about that, well, I certainly have less sense of self than, than he has. You know? And it's possible, I would invite you to experiment what it's like to not 
take credit or blame for your experience. You can do it in any moment. You just, it just takes practice. I remember one, one uh, moment on the cushion, um, <clears throat> it's also on a, a long retreat, and I had been kind of really in a, in a rhythm, in a groove, and I was just sitting for long hours, uh, one hour after another, and it was just, it, I wasn't struggling, it was just like it was happening, and it was, it was really wonderful, and I'd sit down and it was pretty clear, and a um, lot of energy, and in this, this uh, one sitting, I had been sitting for a few hours, and, and this person came down to the, to the hall, um, who I respected greatly, who really sincere, great, great yogi. And um, I was sitting with my eyes open, just every now and then I'd open up my eyes just to get grounded. And, and this person sat down, and after about you know, five minutes, she had this classic case of the nods. It was just kind of like all the way down and all the way up. You know, if you ever have that, you know, that is, that's a real trip. Just kind of, you know. I've spent, I know that one well. And in fact, this is the insight. Just was saying, how is it possible that here I am just cruising you know, mindfully with energy and all, and here's this really wonderful yogi sits down and just nodding off and nodding up. And in, in a moment, I, I thought of the countless hours that I had spent like this and knew full well that tomorrow it could be just as easily me on that cushion doing that. And the whole room kind of spun around and it wasn't bodies. It, it wasn't it wasn't James and Laura and all these other, other people and who they were, but it was like just these different energies given, giving rise in different expressions. And, and this one here was energy and, and, some, and mindfulness, and this one was sleepiness, and this one was restlessness, this one might have been calm. And it could all be mixed up, you know, an hour from then. And to take credit for being in the space that I was, it, it, it was so clearly absurd. How could I say, oh, aren't I doing well, when I had no idea why that was happening or what I had to do with it? <laughs> Anytime you take credit, you are setting yourself up for blame. That's extra. It's all extra. So having this understanding of of non-delusion is seeing that you don't control the show. And it's a great relief, as scary as that might be for, for people to hear. You don't have the control that you thought you did. It's really great news because when you finally get it, you see that's just extra effort. Oh, if I don't control the show, what am I doing running around like, you know, a hamster on a treadmill trying to trying to make it a certain way? What if I just stop like in that that paragraph that I read the other night? What if I just stop and just relax and just be? Now that doesn't mean that you are not honoring your uniqueness when you see through this created sense of self. Because on one hand, in the ultimate, you don't control the, sh- the, the show and you are not separate. And on the other hand, you have your story and your personality and your responses and your history and your gifts and your talents that are just your expression of life as it moves through you. I want to share this from uh, by Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille. She said this, There is a vitality, a life force that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, 
It will never exist through any other medium and be lost. Your task is not to compare or evaluate it with others' expressions. Your task is to simply keep the channel open. So it's dancing in both levels, the relative level where you have your own unique being and the ultimate level where there is no separation, where you see who this sense of, of limited self or I is really fabricated. Anatta does not hurt. You know, I used to think, well, if I really got that I, I don't exist, I just disappear or I lose something, you know, it doesn't hurt. You're still around, but you just see yourself in a different way. It's hard to fully express this. I'll just share a couple of passages and um, hope that you can get this sense of who you are underneath your story. This is from Nisargadat Maharaj. All of these self-identifications are misleading. Because of them, you take yourself to be what you are not. It is enough to know what you are not. You need not know what you are. For as long as knowledge means description in terms of what is already known, what you are cannot be described except as total negation. All you can say is, I am not this, I am not that. The title of his book is I Am That, but he's talking about a different I. All you can say is, I am not this, I am not that. You cannot meaningfully say, this is what I am. It just makes no sense. What you can point out as this or that cannot be yourself. Surely you cannot be something else. You are nothing perceivable or imaginable. Yet without you there can be neither perception nor imagination. And then a little later he says, he's asked about his realization at 37. He said, Pleasure and pain lost their sway over me. I was free from desire and fear. I found myself full, needing nothing. I saw that in the ocean of pure awareness, on the surface of the universal consciousness, the numberless waves of the phenomenal worlds arise and subside, beginninglessly and endlessly. As consciousness, they are all me. As events, they are all mine. There is a mysterious power that looks after them. That power is awareness. Self, higher self, life, God, whatever name you call it, it is the foundation, the ultimate support of all that is. Just like the gold is the basis for all gold jewelry, and it is so intimately ours. Abstract the name and shape from the jewelry and the gold becomes obvious. Be free of name and form and of the desires and fears they create. Then see what remains. Guy was talking about the five aggregates uh, yesterday. The only difference between somebody in confusion and somebody who is free is that they don't grasp at the aggregates. Don't take them to be self. In the moment that you are mindful, you are not identifying with the experience. It's simply what is arising in this moment. And that is a moment of non-delusion, of clarity and wisdom. The karmic seed is sown to feel good right now. The result in the future is that that response is more likely to arise. And also, 
the karmic result is wisdom dawning on you. So in every moment that we are mindful, I hope you get, we are transforming suffering into happiness. Every single moment counts. You are doing that. Just close with uh, a Rumi poem. At least part of the poem. There is nothing left of me. I'm like a ruby held up to the sunrise. Is it still a stone or a world made of redness? It has no resistance to sunlight. This is how Halaj said, I am God and told the truth. The ruby and sunrise are one. Be courageous and discipline yourself. Work. Keep digging your well. Don't think about getting off from work. Water is there somewhere. Submit to a daily practice. Your loyalty to that is a ring on the door. Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look out to see who's there. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.